This is the first Sunday in the green season and the Sundays after Pentecost. And in my sermon this morning, I have probably too many things that I've decided to do, but we'll just do that anyway. One is to say a brief word about the green season and how we might understand it. Then to uh, preach about Mark's gospel and to say some things to you which I have said before about Mark's gospel and the synoptic problem. And then to say some things about the parables and specifically these two parables. Notice we had harvest hymns and we had all this and we have a sort of a theme of growing and harvest and so on in the parables from today. And then maybe to suggest some things about how, as we understand ourselves as the church, kind of uh, always in a germinating situation over time, some ways of being in the world, uh, and I'm using what I'm going to talk to you about is from Diana Butler Bass, who is currently very popular in the Episcopal Church. Uh, She goes to the Episcopal Church. She wrote a wonderful book called Christianity for the Rest of Us, which is a great apologia for the kind of Christianity that we believe is the most compelling and sensible for uh, people to embrace and to commend to others. And she has a brand new book about um, uh, Christianity, the inside story or something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it looks promising. But I won't tell you that it is until I've actually read uh, more in it. I have a lot of books. And um, sometimes people come into my office and they look at them and they say, have you read all these books? And I say, well, you know, I'm like Dr. Johnson, you know, Samuel Johnson in the 18th century. Sir, I have read in them. (laughs) So, you know, you don't have to read a book from cover to cover. And I, I know some of you may be like this. I'm usually reading about three or four things uh, at, the same, at the same time. So that's the, the way in which it works. The green season, uh, the Sundays after Pentecost, over the last, last year and I think even the year before, I kept beating the drum almost every sermon and saying the, this is the season that is about the nature of Christian discipleship, the cost of Christian discipleship, and the ways and means of being a Christian disciple in the world. And that is true. But in the blurb that I put in, we'll keep in the bulletin uh, for most of the green season, about the green season, uh, describes uh, the season and says that in the Roman Catholic Church, these are called Sundays in Ordinary Time. When the prayer book was being revised and, and some of us were still having a struggle with preferring the elitist way in which we seem to always be on the side of obscure and abstruse language to describe liturgical matters, we thought, gee, ordinary time sounds kind of, I don't know, ordinary. (laughs) But as it says in that blurb, ordinary time, and and now a number of Episcopal churches have taken, have decided to use ordinary time as well. You know, our lectionary and our our liturgical pattern uh, is about 90% the same as the Roman Catholic Church. So what we read on Sunday in the, in the, the lessons are the ones that are being read at St. Mary's. You know, that's what we, we do that now sort of as an ecumenical thing. And so the idea of the ordinariness of this, this time 
affords the opportunity for the church in its liturgy, for the preacher, for the teacher, for those of you who are reflecting about uh, God's will and purpose for you, to get some idea of how God is present to you in the ordinary and in the commonplace. And it's a good time to read Gospels about planting seeds because as you nurture and mature in the spiritual life, there's something about the mysterious processes of generation and coming to fruition that I think are important um, concepts in spiritual growth and development. So the Sundays in ordinary time are both ordinary but also extraordinary in the sense that they focus us not just on the life of Jesus, which the other seasons do in a much more intense way, but on our own spiritual journey, both corporately and personally. So every time you hear a sermon here, it's going to be about something uh, in that vein. So Mark's gospel. Uh, let me give you again, I'm going to keep the, the uh, David Brewer breathless tour of the, of the synoptic theory. All right? The first three Gospels in the New Testament are called synoptic. It comes from a Greek word which means to be seen together. And the reason for that is, is that they tell the same stories, use the same sources, and have a particular uh, outlook that, that could constitute a tradition of an, a number of the, the communities and congregations out of which these writings emerge. You know, the process of the oral tradition coming into writing forms of it, and then the final process of the writer of the gospel now producing what we possess as either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Luke and Matthew had a copy of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel. So in this cycle, we're reading the first of the gospels, and we mean then maybe 65 to 75 AD that this gospel was written. And Luke and Matthew had a copy of it to write their gospel. So they knew what Mark had to say. They also, each of them, Matthew and Luke, had material that came both from an oral tradition and some written material in all probability uh, that is unique to their particular gospel, like Matthew or Luke. So we call that special M for Matthew and special L for Luke. And then Luke and Matthew possess a written source that we do not possess in, it, in any form. Uh, it could have been fragmentary. I happen to be one of the people who believes there was no, no what I'm just gonna describe in a minute, but it, in a form that was circulated that it was much more fragmentary than that. But it's called Q, which stands for the German word quella, which means source. And they possess this source, Luke and Matthew in common, plus Mark's gospel, plus their special material. So Mark is the earliest one. It's the shortest gospel. It's the gospel with the greatest urgency. It's the gospel that calls the reader or the listener to some decision at the end in the most um, uh, authentic and reliable manuscripts. There is no resurrection appearance in Mark's gospel. It concludes with the women running away from the empty tomb. And the reader is to come to the conclusion that, oh, he's risen from the dead, 
and so on. But the decision is put on uh, the reader. There is a famous New Testament scholar uh, who uh, died in the late 1970s named Rudolf Bultmann. He was a German, and um, now, uh, fortunately, people are beginning to have a critical look at Rudolf Bultmann, as they should have uh, a long time ago. His learning was absolutely massive. And I remember my New Testament professor in seminary saying, you will never understand Rudolf Bultmann, who seemed to be like, does he believe anything? Until you understand that Rudolf Bultmann is a hot gospelist. And Rudolf Bultmann would say something like, in an interview I heard him once when he was an old man, he said, Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead until he has risen from the dead for you. Now that's very Lutheran also. <laughs> and that's one of the things that we need to say about that uh, because we have been very much uh, uh, you know, influenced by Lutheran, New Testament, German, biblical scholarship for a long time. Be that as it may, much of what is there is important and useful. And Mark's gospel does have this element of calling the reader or the listener to a decision. So today we have two parables. And we'll be reading some parables now as, as we move forward from Mark's gospel. These parables appear in Matthew and Luke in various forms or sometimes almost identically. Jesus preached and taught in parables because what he was talking about in his earthly ministry was simply too hot to handle. And so the method of parables was a way that he could do this uh, without getting himself into hot water in a way that would prevent his ministry to continue. And so parables became the preferred method. Also, in the ancient Near East, parables were an exceptionally good way to teach and people were used to hearing parables of one kind or another from the tradition of the Hebrew Bible and uh, how the uh, uh, rabbis and so on taught uh, the people that they served. So it was a method that was um, known and was uh, not always understood completely. Remember, uh, sometimes people ask the question, why was Jesus spending a lot of time in kind of obscure backwaters or sort of not in the bigger towns always. And that was probably uh, because he was trying to avoid getting arrested until he felt he needed to get arrested, right? So there were a lot of people who were following him around uh, uh, doing this. So we have two parables. One about the sower who sows the seed, it goes in the ground, and it, it, it then grows into uh, the wheat, they used the term corn back then, you know, we didn't, there was no corn in the ancient Near East like we know about corn in, in the Western Hemisphere, right? You know, Nancy and I were talking the other day, we were sitting around, I don't know, watching a food show, and uh, which we do from time to time. <laughs> and uh, we began to think that up until the uh, Christopher Columbus, what we didn't have in Europe to eat, no corn, no tomatoes, no beans, no, no cane sugar, no tobacco, no chocolate, no turkey, no coffee, no tea, none of that, right? There's a whole lot of stuff we didn't eat here in Europe. 
you know, we didn't have it yet. Hot peppers in the food. In India, the Indians didn't have hot peppers in the food. They had black pepper. They got the hot peppers from here, from Mexico and Central America, capital. And that's how it went that way and then came back. Interesting. Anyhow, what does that have to do with the parable of the soul? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> but it's an agricultural story, isn't it? The sowing of the seed, it grows, he knows not how, it says in here. And all of a sudden, uh, it comes up. The mysterious processes of growth. It is, I read a commentary about this that said the preacher should avoid using any kind of biological explanation for this because in the ancient Near East, they didn't know about the biological way in which seeds become plants. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in somehow the processes of God at work, the processes of nature at work that were at that time to them mysterious and somehow the fruit was born and came to completeness and the sickle comes in. I think this has something to do, well, let's say this. Whenever you read a parable, you need to read it from three points of view. What Jesus meant when he spoke it, what the community that wrote the gospel meant when they reproduced it for the community, and what are you and I gonna do with it, if anything at all? Is it of any use to us at all? Uh, living in the first part of the 21st century. So Jesus was explaining when he told the parable something about the rather obscure beginnings of his <coughs> ministry, about the sort of uh, necessity for the processes of germination to take place with his movement and with understanding what it was he was suggesting about God doing a new thing in a restored Israel about God now bringing to final completion the return from exile that had occurred about 200 or 300 years before, but in the, uh, in the view of many had not really come to completion, but that in him this was going to come to completion. And yet at the time it seemed like there wasn't anybody buying it. This movement didn't have any legs. And so God's processes now are sort of germinating and working. The early Christian community out of which Mark's gospel came said, our movement, those of us who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that in his words and in his works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God, that this view is not widely shared and that we need to remind ourselves that the mysterious processes of God are at work just as they are in the seed that's planted in the ground. Remember I've said to you, the word mystery doesn't mean something that is unknowable. It can mean something that is infinitely knowable. So what appears often in our own lives is mysterious. Ultimately, as we become more intentional about whatever things we need to, it's less mysterious than it used to be. What had previously been baffling and confusing now begins to become more clear. And this parable is about that at those two levels, and at the third level, it's about what I just said to you. That you and I, as we look back on our life, we begin to see that there were some conundrums and some uh, difficulties and ambiguities that we couldn't make sense of, and maybe they've come to be, be more sensible as you've lived your life and focused on it in some way. You know, prayer 
uh, there's a, a famous Russian Orthodox Archbishop who lived in England for many years named Anthony Bloom. And he wrote a book on prayer. And one of the things I remember about it was, I think in the opening chapter, he said, prayer is a piece of straight thinking about God. <coughs> and that was taken up and supported in another book written by John McQuarrie, the great, the late Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford, who talked about prayer as thinking. And I mention that only because thinking clearly Developing some sense of clarity about God's will and purpose for you is a way of uh, living spirituality, which is such a popular word these days. And so the germinating processes of God are at work. <coughs> the second parable, these are separate units put together, <coughs> uh, is about the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds and it grows this huge tree. And when I was reading it this week, I thought of a couple of things. One is, once again, uh, for, the mar for, for Jesus, out of a small beginning can come a big movement. That's what he's talking about. So those of you who are following me are gonna see, uh, ultimately, in God's time, something flourish from this. The community of Mark's gospel said, out of something small, we will begin to see the fruit of this. Although I think there's something else here. This is when I, when I was sitting with the text this week, I thought this to myself. The thing that it says there is that the branches are quite large and the shade is great and the birds can nest in the branches. And you think about the ancient Near East and people being under in the shade. And maybe you know the umbrella in the shade is something that covers a lot of different kinds of people. And that there is an idea that uh, now we have a God who has invited everyone to be, to be part of his saving embrace. Jesus' ministry was about the invitation that was being made by God through him in his ministry, that now the time had come to make real what their sacred literature, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, had said about what God is doing in the world, and it is. He is inviting everyone to come in, not just the people of the covenant with whom he has had a special and important and intense relationship, but that it did not vest them with special privileges. It gave them certain obligations and responsibilities <coughs> that they now had to be th the thin edge of the wedge coming in to say, God is welcoming you. You are now welcome to come into this saving embrace under the shade of the tree. And so maybe when we think about this, we can say a couple of things in our own lives. You know, from small beginnings, big things can happen. If you have a vision and you do uh, what you do, it could be because you have persevered and you have applied yourself in this way and the processes that allow you finally to bring your vision to a reality uh, occur sometimes mysteriously, you know? But somehow you have a piece in this, don't you? You cooperate with the divine initiatives as things move forward. 
You can tell my young son uh, is a chef. I'm very proud of him. He has worked like a dog for many years to do this. And he said to me the other day, he said, you know, Dad, I have wanted to do this since I was 11 years old. He never would have dreamed it. Right? And he finally told me that this was something that he did want to do, and he now has borne down on it. And he's, he's able to do it. You know, he had no idea at the time how he was going to get from the small seed to what he's doing now. Which is, uh, which is good. And I think that's true for, for most of us. Now, when I've spoken to you about these parables, we've focused on Jesus's, the Jesus level, the church's level, and our level subjectively and personally. But these parables have application, and certainly in the view of the people who first heard them, uh, as something that has application corporately in our common life together. And Diana Butler Bass would say, as a community of faith, as this tree is in, you know, this mustard seed is in the ground, or these seeds are being sown, there's some things that we can do corporately and that we can do individually, which might uh, allow these processes to flourish and continue to make the, the soil in which they're planted uh, healthy. Here's what she says, authenticity, hospitality, mutuality, and compassion and mercy. So let me explain them quickly. Authenticity means, uh, you know, we, we start from a default position that all of us are people of goodwill, and we mean what we say. That we work always on our character and integrity. And institutions need to do this, don't they? Because uh, rightly so, I think many uh, Americans are very suspicious of institutions of all kinds because we're continuously let down by uh, people who are, are in positions of uh, trust and authority who don't uh, in some way uh, work on the integrity and the character that they need to. I heard, uh, took a class a long time ago from John Sanford, the great Jungian therapist on dreams, and in the course of the uh, class, he said, character is living your life according to certain principles. So maybe something to do about authenticity has to do with the building and the development of character and personal integrity. Hospitality is the generous impulse in the human person, both personally and individually and corporately that uh, you extend in your own life in some form God's welcome. And if what I just said is true about Jesus' earthly ministry and one of the central themes of what he had to say in his earthly ministry, it was that God welcomes you. And so in my own life, uh, in many ways, that should be uh, the default position, that we take other people uh, seriously in that sense you know, and that we are hospitable and that we are generous. This is not easy to do with people that are not attractive or people whose behavior and uh, way of being is simply not the same as ours and we find it trying to a degree. And that's where the great challenge is, you know. James Madison, one of the founding fathers of this country said, if all men were virtuous, there would be no need for laws. And I mention that only because uh, 
the fact of the matter is, is that the, the, the moral and ethical precepts that we believe should exist and we should live by, at least I hope you do, uh, are there not for when we find them easy. They're there when we're challenged to say, I'm not, I do not believe myself free to behave that way, right? Because I have other commitments that trump uh, those, those, uh, those instincts. Mutuality means that we take each other seriously, that we understand that the practical wisdom that we have learned over time and the practical wisdom that other people have learned over time are things that we can share with one another in common to build up the body. You know, there's a lot of talk in the church about ministry. And for the last 35 or 40 years, we have endlessly talked about all of our ministry that we have by virtue of our baptism. But the way Paul would have understood that and some of the early Christian communities that emerged from the New Testament was that your work is part of the building up of the body of Christ and that the building up of the body of Christ does not have to do just with church life. It has to do with the way in which you uh, take other people seriously, share with them the practical wisdom you have learned with humility, and have the humility to listen to some of the practical wisdom that people share with you that is going to help you in whatever way that might mean. Might make you do your job better, might make you a more decent human being, might make you a little less anxious, might make you a little more able to uh, be a healthy person in every level that that means. So mutuality is an important thing that is part of this process of spiritual development and growth. And finally, compassion and mercy. And you've heard me, I, I could realize when I talked about this that it was a hard sell and still is, but I like compassion or sympathy over empathy. And compassion and mercy are two things that are, are important for us to reflect back to each other and to the world. In the Bible somewhere, at least once, it says you must be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. The priest I began my ministry with said, everybody needs a break. Everybody needs a break. So sometimes the dilemma for us, isn't it, that uh, we don't know when to give people a break or not because we think we got to hold them to some responsibility, and we might. But there may be times when uh, being merciful and compassionate is uh, the way in which we need to operate with people and maybe it's another way of taking them seriously. So I guess the lesson this week would be to, to uh, think about the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you. What's growing and germinating in your life that uh, may at this point be mysterious, but that you know is there? How can you uh, in some way know that God's purposes are being worked out even though it's taken a long time? You know, gardening is, uh, my wife Nancy's a wonderful gardener and I think part of it is because she has the patience to be able to plant the thing and not get where I'm standing over it waiting for it to come up. <laughs> That's the thing that I want. Well, how come it's going to take now six months for us to see even this? But you know you got to do this with some faith and hope that this is now going to come and be what it is that you, you your vision of it was going to be in the garden. And that's true, I think, in our own spiritual journeys. So work on that and see what if what doing uh, you, you, you can know about in be a better way. And if anything has uh, come to fruition, 
that's not being harvested by you, maybe the time now is to put the sickle in. Amen. Amen. Cafe.